Water and Food Level Patreon members can also now watch my archive interview with Professor James Lovelock, recorded on the eve of his 100th birthday in 2019. The interview was recorded for the Cambridge Climate Lecture Series, but only a small segment was used. Jim gives his views on a range of subjects, including how society stymies education, about the potential for geoengineering, and the overall outlook for humanity. This is over 25 minutes of interview, and whether you agree with Jim or not, he was one of the great thinkers of the last 100 years, who died in 2022 on his 103rd birthday. Well, if you want my personal view on this, I don't think that humanity is going to be bothering about this very much longer, perhaps not longer than this century. We are evolving still and changing, and uh, the things we're changing into are brighter than we are. Uh, And I'm not talking about robots now or mechanical devices. I'm talking about evolution. We all of us are evolving into other things. I think it's a very interesting future. In this Climate Gen episode, I speak with climate scientist and author Professor Bill Maguire about his recent book titled Hot House Earth. Bill discusses the necessity to discuss worst-case climate outcomes at a time when emissions are still rising and political leaders are looking the other way. We discuss the absence of global leadership in the fight to hold temperature rise to within the boundaries that humanity has thrived for the last 11,000 years. The rate of change means that the next 100 years, let alone the next 10,000, really require global leadership and collective action from everyone on Earth who has the ability and the agency to act. In the next episode, I speak with former XR spokesman, author and philosopher Professor Rupert Reed, and systems and culture change strategist Paddy Lofman, who have been working towards establishing a new inclusive cross-societal paradigm of action to tackle climate breakdown that they call the moderate flank. Thanks for listening to Climate Gen. You can subscribe on all major podcast channels and YouTube to stay up to date, and you can also support this channel via Patreon. Thank you. Bill, it's fantastic to see you again. Um, I, I want to start, we're obviously discussing your new book, Hot House Earth, where you, you take us through the Earth's history and a wide range of geophysical processes that have got us to the place where humanity thrives. And then you weave in the impacts that we collectively are having on the life system in the biosphere. And it's pretty dire a Dante-esque inferno that humanity is cooking up with gusto. And the narrative of correction or changing course to right our wrongs resonates with so many people. And yet we look at the real world around us, the politics in the US, the UK and many other places, and the void between where we are and where we need to be is so great that we might conclude that your worst case scenario of hot house earth is inevitable. Can you talk about your author-to-reader intention in writing this sort of contemporary version of Dante's Climate Inferno? Yeah, yeah well, I, I wrote this um, straight after COP26 in Glasgow, which I, I attended, and it was just, uh, not surprisingly, it was just an incredibly depressing event. I mean, you know, as usual, promises have come out of it, pledges have come out of it, but nothing that is that has any standing in law, uh, nothing that, that there are any real commitments to. And, and it was after that when people were still talking, governments and, and leader, world leaders talking about 
one and a half degrees global average temperature rise, we can stay be below that. Um, we're aiming at net zero in 2050, this sort of thing. And it, you know, I just thought this is nonsense. It's complete nonsense. Um, the facts are that to stay uh, this side of that 1.5 degree C global average temperature rise guardrail, we need emissions to fall 45% in about 90 months. Um, they've shown no sign of falling at all, apart from a little blip during the pandemic. So how the hell is that going to happen? It's not. And in fact, emissions uh, were on track to be 14, 15% higher by 2013. With all that's gone on in Ukraine and the energy issues from that, it could well be higher. So you know, if, if we're going to break the one and a half degree C global average temperature rise, then we are then in uh, dangerous climate breakdown territory, as everybody's admitted. So we cannot avoid that now. And what that means is that as it, it becomes even more urgent that we need to slash emissions as fast as possible. But we have to adapt as well. The dangerous climate change is here. Okay. We'll come back to what we need to do. Um, I was at the COP as well. And that feeling that you described as, as realising that there's pledges and promises, that, but nothing's actually happening and things are actually getting worse. Um, do you feel that at the COP, this COP in particular, that the kind of the mask was slipping a little? That there was it was all obvious that this was not really happening, and that the people outside were far more engaged and not in a good way. They were angry and riling up against it in a way. Do you did you get that sense from the COP? Yeah, I did. I mean, when I said it was very depressing, I was talking about what was going on inside the building. But outside, there was all sorts of fantastic activism, lots of fringe events, which I, I attended. Um, as far as the conference itself is concerned, I, I just got the feeling that people were going through the motions. Uh, I didn't think any of them believed that anything concrete was going to come out of it. And uh, nothing concrete did. So, you know, it was it was a fairly, it felt very low key and just run-of-the-mill, let's get this done, get a communique out that, that sounds hopeful, but we all know that, that nothing's changed, really. Okay. I want to just come now to a theme that seems to emerge that you've addressed in the book and, again, recently in an article in The Guardian. But this idea of climate doomers that point to the apocalypse and climate appeasers that claim it's not all that bad and we're going to get through it. And then there's the sort of what I call reality mongers who are looking at the science and at our response at the national and international level, like you've just been talking about. And it, it currently sounding like doomers in a way. Can you define the line between climate doomer and climate reality monger and the danger of appeasement in the current socio-political climate? Yeah, well, it, things, these terms have been changing their meaning a little bit recently, which is what persuaded me to write the piece in the guardian i mean climate doomers or doomists or uh, whatever you like to call them used to be people who said well it's too late to act we've had it we're all going to go extinct um etc um, but recently there have been attacks on on climate scientists and others who just want more of a focus on on bad case and worst case scenarios so you're getting what i call doomer creep and doomism is, is becoming to be regarded as almost anything outside the IPCC um, consensus, which is incredibly dangerous because we are on track at the moment for business as usual, if you like. Now, I don't even I don't expect business as usual to continue throughout the century. We can't possibly be that stupid, can we? Now, that's where we are at the moment. So 
ignoring three degrees, four degrees, five degrees C global average temperature rise is, is madness. I was looking at a report recently that, that said that the IPCC should be looking much more closely at, at bad and worse cases because these aren't particularly likely, but they're certainly perfectly possible. So as the IPCC produced a special report on one and a half degrees, it really needs to, to look at the, the worst cases as well, because you know, they are part of our future. They're certainly possible, and we can't ignore them the way things are going at the moment. Okay. And it takes me back to your, your book in a way that tracks through so many different components of the climate system and how they sort of work independently and together and in 2012 i interviewed james hansen at the egu in vienna and he was saying you know that we needed to, to do the action on emissions reduction then and he said if we wait another decade or so it's going to be very difficult for us to achieve this and here we are in a decade later where everything is absolutely you know is 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 acceleratedly worse from our own inputs and to not now be um putting those worst cases at least on the radar and thinking about what we can do to ameliorate them seems crazy yeah i mean one of the the things that one of the biggest changes is that in recent years has been how quickly a global average temperature rise of about 1.2 degrees has translated into extreme weather I mean, that's been really shocking. And uh, you know, what, what are we going to see at one and a half, two degrees, which is we're almost certainly going to go through those both those barriers. I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about. And as you say, emissions carry on ramping up. Um, no sign of them plateauing or falling. Yeah, it feels like the Earth's sensitivity to these temperature rises is, is much greater than anticipated. Leadership in tackling climate chaos is critical, and yet we see the UK suffering a total collapse of leadership at the top that has soiled the entire body politique, quite literally. And at the international level, we have transnational problems like rainforests and ocean ecosystem collapse, vulnerable nations who urgently need support and solidarity. And yet the Secretary General of the UN, who's our sort of only body who's meant to be able to navigate this mess, can only issue dire warnings while having zero mandate for action amid the accelerating global climate crisis. With COP27 on the horizon, which is dubbed an African COP, where the vulnerable nations will be at the helm, what crosses your mind when you consider another COP in this time of emergent climate chaos, if you like? Yeah, I did, well, no, my attitude to COP27 is, oh, another COP. <laughs> I can't see anything coming out of it. I mean, it would be fantastic if, you know, it, there was a surprise and that, that we had some firm promises, pledges that, were, that had clout in, the, in, in legal terms. But it's difficult to see that. And I, the, the big theme, obviously, is going to be majority world countries saying, look, if you don't want us to follow the route you followed, we need help. We need help to transition to renewables. We need help in terms of reducing our energy usage, in terms of adapting to the climate breakdown that's inevitable. I think that's going to be the massive issue. And the developing countries, the West, if you like, and as it's sometimes said, have to come up with the goods for this. Because mm. if we can't get everybody on board, then we're in real trouble, I think. And, and that means not just developed countries. It means those countries are going to bear the brunt of climate breakdown. They have to be helped. 
And I, I hope that, that something along those lines will come out of COP27 because, to be honest, you know, we're, we're past the point of no return now and it's a, it's a matter of, of acting as quickly as possible to minimise impacts rather than to stop things happening. Yeah, and it's quite easy to give up hope on these after seeing each one sort of one after the other sort of collapse and or not follow through and so on and so forth. But for a lot of these countries, there is no other forum for them to to present their case and actually make the demands that they have to make. So I think it is there is a sort of element of the solidarity that we we've got to keep pushing. Yeah, um, we all. You know, we all have to be involved. Every country has to be on board with with cutting emissions. Obviously, it's the the big emitters that, that need to do the bulk of that, and the others need to be helped. The other problem is that you know the world is not in a good state at the moment. It's you know, teetering on the edge of recession. Um, massive problems in countries like the UK, Europe, the US in terms of cost of living. So you know it's going to be difficult for the leaders of developed countries to sell to their population. We're going to give large amounts of money to developing countries to help them cope with climate breakdown. You know, it has to be done, but it's going to be a hard sell. Yeah, and but you also, again, going back to the last point, is that we need the sort of leadership to navigate that that territory as well, which quite often is completely absent. Yeah, so there's no climate, there's no serious climate leadership in any of the world's major nations. They don't get it. They have no idea how bad the climate breakdown is going to be. Any economic arguments are just nonsense because if we don't act seriously, there won't be any economy. And they really haven't grasped this yet. Okay. And coming back to this sort of the the reader aspect of, of your book, which, you know, reading it is, it, it's a fast read, but at the same time, it's a pretty bleak read. What are the main actions that you see as critical right now that the public at large could undertake, and I'm talking about largely in countries like Britain, Europe, America, could undertake to contribute towards averting the very worst of climate breakdown that largely we're responsible for and that you're warning of. Well, I think you know, many of us know what we should be doing at a personal level because we hear, we've been hearing it for years, cutting down on meat consumption, not flying um, uh, if possible, Although most of the, the flights are by rich people going on multiple holidays a year rather than um, the, the less well-off going on one holiday a year. Uh, switching to a green energy tariff is, is the thing I always tell people, but that's increasingly difficult when energy costs are going through the roof. And for God's sake, most of all, vote in a government that actually is going to act on climate change. Unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be a party at the moment that really gets it even Labour, even the, the main opposition in the UK, their leaders talked about growth, growth, growth as his policy. Bonkers. I mean, look, hasn't he looked around him? Hasn't he understood what's happening on our planet? We have a tiny planet massively being hammered, being destroyed, being trashed by resource depletion, etc. And we, we can't have growth, growth, growth. It's, it's the wrong thing at the wrong time. We need to get people in who will maybe do a little bit more than we've got at the moment, which is essentially nothing. Okay, so it's incumbent upon the the reader to um, to think about the leadership and the governments that they elect. I think I said, in, I mean, a critical point is that every decision made 
by individuals, by small businesses, by councils, by governments, every every decision made, the question has to be asked, is this good for the climate? And if it isn't good for the climate, then it mustn't go ahead. And so that, you know, that that's all the way through society from individuals, groups, businesses, governments, the whole lot. And if we could ask that question every time we decided to go on holiday or to buy a car or what meal we were going to eat or or indeed what energy sources we were going to build or whatever, if you're a government. You know, every decision needs to be asked in, in light of that question. And it's just not happening at the moment. Do you think, um, in based on what you've just said, it's coming back to the individuals, the, the local communities, the businesses and the local government, etc. The The more we can converse about it and talk about it amongst ourselves, we are kind of forming the foundations that goes eventually past your national government and back up to where we should be, where the head of the UN should be able to take action to protect an ocean ecosystem, to make sure that a vulnerable nation is getting the help that they need or the Amazon is protected properly or any other forest for that matter. That we, we sort of, we've eroded the foundations right at the basic level and we can't seem to address the issues properly. No, I mean, I, you know, without leadership at the top the only the only way forward is from the ground up groundswell of public opinion and the people like greta and organizations like extinction rebellion just up oil etc push climate change way up the agenda so they're doing a fantastic job but more and more people need to be got on board i can't see world leaders changing unless there's a clamor from below to change. So in that sense, the, the action of every individual is incredibly important uh, if all those individuals act together. But without that, I can't see an obvious way forward, to be honest. Do you think the the hopelessness of the government in the UK at the moment and the, what we're looking at is a very, very serious crisis with the cost of living, with fuel and so on and so forth, and could that be a sort of a proxy for for people action that actually is related to this climate breakdown in a way? Yeah, well, it could go one of two ways, couldn't it? I mean, people, the cost of living crisis and the climate crisis could work to to raise people en masse, if you like, saying we want something different. Um, and that could be something good. It could be a, a, a sea change in how we produce our energy, how we live our lives, which would solve both issues. But it could go another way as well. It could go the way, I think I mentioned this in the book, that as climate breaks down further, as society starts to fray the edges, there might be a tendency to vote in populist leaders and with populist policies who promise all sorts of things. And that could make things catastrophic. If we if we end up as a result of, of climate collapse with a lot of populist leaders, then you know there's, there's almost no hope in those circumstances. At the end of Hothouse Earth, you depict two possible outcomes for London in 2100. The first is a, a very bleak landscape of collapse, and the second, a, a survivable, different evolution of the city. Given the bulk of the book is drawn from scientific research papers and you know, rigorous analysis, etc., how much is the forecast given at the end an accurate depiction of two viable outcomes and how much of it is conjured from a sort of worst nightmare and a concession of hope at the last minute? Well, yes, there, there are two scenarios for London at the end of the century. It's a bank holiday, I think, and it's hot, it's 40 degrees or whatever. But there are differences in, in one, there, London is semi-derelict, 
a lot of people have moved north, moved somewhere cooler. There's you know, very little happening, very little going on. In the other one, there's been a transformation so that the city's much greener. It has green roofs everywhere, has solar panels everywhere. It's hot, but temperatures are forecast to start coming down in the decades ahead. The roads are not occupied by cars anymore, there's electric trams, etc. There's huge market gardens around the city. This is my imagination, but it's imagination rooted in things that people have talked about and solutions people have talked about. So the first dystopian sort of picture is is where we're headed at the moment because we're not preparing as we should be to cope with what's coming. The utopian, if you like, uh, example of where we might be is not impossible by any means. We know how to do all these things. We know what needs to be done to tackle uh, climate breakdown and to adapt to it, but we're just not doing it at the moment. So one of those scenarios is effectively where we're likely to end up at the moment, and the other one is where it would be nice to end up if we start acting seriously now. And I like that because it's like a, a visual sort of milestone that something is tangible for people to aim for, if you like, and talk about. This is really to end with, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give our chances of achieving the better case outcome for London? Well, at the moment, I sort of, you know, I'd have to put it at 2 or 3 out of 10, I'm afraid. I would love to be more optimistic, but it's very, very difficult at the moment to, you know, to think that we might end up somewhere like that. It's not impossible, but we need big changes, very big changes now, really. Okay. Well, I was hoping for a five, but there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Another day it might have been five, but today it was three. Thank you very much. It's been great to speak to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks again for listening. If you are interested to help support this series and help expand the discussion around climate topics, then please do consider backing my channel via Patreon. It will help me produce more content and you will also gain access to more expert interviews. It would be great to engage more with audiences too and understand your views on these topics.